to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, emptiness, Buddhism, hardcore dharma, the mycelial network, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking with Tucker Peck. Tucker Peck, PhD, is a meditation teacher and clinical psychologist whose specialties include working with advanced meditators and using meditation to help those suffering from psychological disorders. Tucker is a published author on the scientific study of meditation, focusing on how it affects the brain, and is a faculty member at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Tucker was also a founding board member of Chuladasa's Dharma Treasure Sangha. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Meditation, Madness, and Psychology with Tucker Peck. Great. So, Tucker, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. It's really fun to be here. Yeah, this is one of those rare opportunities where I get to actually have the guest in the studio here in San Francisco with me, which is really a pleasure. So, again, welcome. Thank you. Now, you're a new resident to the Bay Area. Yeah, I moved to an island called Alameda about two and a half months ago. I was living in Tucson for the last 10 years. Yeah, so Alameda used to be a peninsula, actually, and then they dredged it out to the channel to make it an island. And Bay Farm Island actually is now a peninsula. They flipped it. (laughs) Good move on their part, right? So what brings you to the Bay Area? Mostly socially. I'm 36. Being like a gay Buddhist with a PhD in Tucson makes you kind of lonely and in Oakland makes you expendable. Yeah. So in the Bay Area, you have more opportunity for social connection. Yeah. With with quotes around social. (laughs) Yeah. I've got a lot more friends here. Tucson's a hippie city, but, you know, being a Dharma teacher is kind of a weird thing to do in Tucson. In San Francisco, it's strange if you're not a Dharma teacher, you know? Oh, yeah, no, you go to 7-Eleven and the cashier is a <laughs> Dharma teacher. Like, yeah, but she's Mahayana, and so we <laughs> we have some lengthy textual disagreements over the Slurpee. <laughs> exactly. So you have a PhD in clinical psychology, and you're also teaching mind-illuminated retreats, correct? So Chula Dasa School. You know, I teach student-centered retreats, so I wouldn't say I teach anything In particular, I teach whatever I can that the students want to learn. Most people come to me through TMI or Pragmatic Dharma channel. So I I do end up teaching Mind Illuminated quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really unusual, actually, that I have someone on the show who is a clinical psychologist. Mm. So that offers like an interesting angle on all this. I'm curious, first of all, you know, what's it like having this psychological training, having worked, I think, in clinical settings with a lot of super disturbed individuals, I presume with a lot of medication and so on, and then coming to the Dharma world and seeing the kind of crazy stuff that happens there. Can you just talk (laughs) about that a little bit? Yeah, I I think it's great. I mean, I, I feel like when I'm teaching retreats, Three quarters of what I'm doing is using clinical skills, the route to all the sorts of high states that my students are after. uh, That route usually traverses a valley through your own psychology that you didn't realize was going to be there. It feels like all the clinical training was really helpful. So when people, you know, break down on retreats, start wailing and screaming, dissociating, whatever, it doesn't look weird to me. 
when that happens. I feel really comfortable when people are, you know, loudly re-experiencing trauma and the kinds of things that will happen on a long retreat. Yeah, so how do you model the stuff that you're noticing there? Is that for you like Dukanyana type material and you see it as cycling through the stages of insight? Or are you seeing it in a different Buddhist or other model? Or are you seeing it in a psychological model, all of the above? I actually see it in a psychological model. Most students are coming to me through pragmatic dharma. It's a very specific type of person, right? Yeah. Um, people coming to me through Mind Illuminated, read a 500-page book on how to sit quietly, yeah. decided that wasn't enough information, <laughs> ended up on different internet channels, ended up talking to me for even more information. So there's a very specific type of person who's tending to come to my retreats. And if you ask my average student to do differential equations in their head, they could probably, you know, get some headway on that. If you ask them what their knee feels like or what emotional state they're in, they would give up and break down in frustration. I think there is a myth of the Dharma that if you practice meditation enough, your emotions, your psychology basically disappear and you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to worry about it. Just sit there quietly for long enough and you will have no psychology. Yeah, sadly, this is completely false. It sounds like we'll get to talk about this later, but when you meet realized people, they're pretty weird. <laughs> it's very rare that they you know, are kind of neutral with no apparent personality characteristics. So, And I've never met a high-level practitioner who didn't have a whole bunch of emotions going on and <laughs> yeah. really recognizable emotions arising for normal reasons in recognizable ways. Some practitioners do not recognize this in themselves, you know, but the people around them can certainly tell. So I guess the way I would conceive of it is there's not a lot of emotional depth, at least in the Theravada Dharma. It's primarily about awakening and the mechanisms of ending suffering. It seems like most people will need to learn to feel their own emotions before they can go there. This path where you ignore what's going on in your mind, downplay your psychology and hope to transcend it, this is a dead end, you know, like in uh, Abhidhamma psychology, if you're doing something from an unwholesome root, the karma is going to be bad, right? So the attempt to not see clearly is a wrong path. And it's not that hard to follow this wrong path in daily practice. By day three or four of a retreat, to continue not noticing all the emotions you're having is bordering on impossible. I think that's why the first half of retreats to me, you know, first half of 10-day retreats usually feel much more clinical than Dharma. So people who are coming to one of your retreats are going to have been ignoring all those emotional signals in everyday life and now they cannot help but kind of get smacked in the face with this big wet smelly salmon of their own emotional reactions beating them about the face in Monty Python fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anybody who is considering coming to my retreats, hopefully we've scared you away. Yes. Well, and this happens at all retreats. I've never been at one or taught one for that matter where that wasn't going on. And in my own practice, I mean, there was like about 20 years in there where every retreat was just getting smashed in the face with emotion. <laughs> so it seems like par for the course. Yeah. I'd seen Richie Davidson say in a talk one time, he called it the dirty laundry of meditation research, which is you compare meditators to controls on any psychological variable. And it turns out we were worse at baseline the kind of person with great mental health, no emotional issues. I could count on my fingers the number of students I've had who've shown up like that. 
Yeah, it's just not that motivational. Yeah, there's so much fun you could have. Why go sit in silence for 10 days unless there was some compelling reason? You know, I don't know about you. What got you into meditating in the first place? You know, I was in a sixth grade social studies class and they were talking about the world religions. I'd never heard of Buddhism before. And it just grabbed me. The teacher said the Four Noble Truths. And I thought, as soon as I'm old enough, I'm converting to that religion. And they, they passed an idol of the Buddha around the classroom. And I didn't pass it in very non-Buddhist fashion. I just kept it on my desk for a week. <laughs> <laughs> then I forgot about it. When I was 19, I had mono for the summer and I couldn't really do anything. So I learned to meditate then. I had a, like, what I think would be called an A&P experience, like a mystical experience that blows open your concept of reality, meditating on the beach. And I tried for about a week living in accordance with it and decided that being 19 and living in accordance with a mystical experience were simply at odds with each other. And I was going to forget about it and come back to it when I was ready, which in retrospect was a pretty good idea. And then... I used to do this thing where if I had free time, I would drive as far as it was possible to drive. I once did 10,000 miles in 24 days. Nice. And Road trip. <laughs> I was living in Providence. I had driven to Portland, Oregon via northern British Columbia. And I was lying in the grass in Portland enjoying the sunshine. Suddenly thought, like, why did I drive 6,000 miles to lie in the grass? We have grass in Providence. And I had remembered a line I'd read a few years earlier by Thich Nhat Hanh. It said, we don't need to go to China to enjoy the blue sky. So I sprinted over to Powell's bookstore and read Thich Nhat Hanh all day and joined a sangha when I got back home to figure out how to enjoy the blue sky without going to China. I went to China the following year, but it was just a coincidence. <laughs> the first time I ever meditated, the first time I ever meditated in a sangha, I sat down in this group and my fingers would not stop moving. And I thought, I have to learn to meditate so I can stop fidgeting all the time. And I haven't stopped fidgeting. The change is I can tell you every thought, emotion, and anxiety behind each fidget now. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, perfect contact with the momentary arising of fidget. <laughs> nice. So, so far you have not described the usual, and I include myself in this, emotional suffering travesty slash tragedy that typically drives someone to meditate. You know, if I were being kind of mythological, you're more like describing a past life samskara thing, like I just heard the Four Noble Truths and had to become a Buddhist. So what was really the motivation driving you? The motivation at that point was just spiritual interest, really. I mean... So curiosity. Uh, yeah, curiosity. I mean, once I got into the path, I was noticing how much I had been repressing. My childhood was, you know, devoid of any especially awful things, but people with childhoods devoid of awful things can still spend 10 years crying every retreat, which I did. The thing that propelled the practice was when I was 20, I had already been practicing and my dad died. He was young and healthy and my mom just came home and found his body. And I was in college. I was drinking very, very heavily at the time. And I had a lot of friends the way you do when you're drinking heavily. But it wasn't clear to me I had any real friends. It was like, you know, yeah, there was tequila in my room buddies. so people would yeah. show up. Yeah, <laughs> Drinking buddies. So my dad died and the guys in the frat I was in took such amazing care of me after that happened that like my heart blew open. This was the beginning of the arising and passing for me. I was experiencing like this extraordinary sense of 
joy and love and connection. And also my dad and I were really close. Um, you know, I was pretty young. I didn't have a lot of friends with dead parents yet. So it was a terrible loss. And I was so sad about it. And so like, grateful and blessed to be alive. And I was studying Spanish literature, actually, in college. And uh, after that experience, decided going to school to learn how to read was a stupid thing to do. So who's your favorite Spanish author? It's kind of a front runner. I like Marquez. I like how weird it is. <laughs> yeah. The magical realism is amazing. It is beautiful. <laughs> There's a couple books he read that no one ever talks about that are great, like Life in the Time of Cholera, like stuff like that. There's a short one. It's a long name. In English, it's something like The Tale of Innocent Erendira and Her Soulless Grandmother or something like that. She's like a prostitute out in the desert at a young age and like thousands of people are coming and there's bumper stickers that says, I think of you, Erendira. You can <laughs> What's it called? Erendira is the woman's name. It's a really long title and it's not a translation. It's a different English title than a Spanish title. Yeah. Good. So this is a much more archetypal story that you're <laughs> describing of your father's death and having a heart opening experience driving you to meditate. I can really feel that one. So how about the psychology aspect? What got you into clinical psychology? It had always been on my mind. I took a psych class in high school where as part of the class, you were a kindergarten teaching aide. Now I'm like a 10 out of 10 on an extrovert scale. I like being around people. But the thing that really convinced me was this heart opening, like... There was a bunch of other problems around the time of my dad's death. You know, I had a lot of problems and was just so glad to be alive. And I knew so many people with so few problems who wish they were dead. And that was what got me into psychology to a minor degree, the like intellectual interest of how that was possible to a major degree. Uh, you know, when you see people in the arising and passing, they think they're enlightened and they're just dumb as hell, you know, and, and I was too. And I just thought the world needs a hug and I'm going to give it. And I, right <laughs> after college, started working in a pediatric mental hospital, you know, and the kids have all been like raped and tortured and starved by the age of seven or something. And it turned out the hugs were insufficient. <laughs> this was... that the hugs were not fully curative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were um, maybe a part of a larger treatment package. <laughs> <laughs> and this was part of what started the dark night for me. Yeah, so talk about your dark night experience. Oh, God, it was awful. I was studying with Sharon Salzberg at the time, and she told me back then, at least, she hadn't seen somebody go into a dark night who hadn't done retreat. And she, even back then, was a pretty prominent person. So we'd talk four times a year or something. And I wasn't clear enough. She wasn't looking for it. And so... Nobody told me what was happening. I went from this place where like, oh God, meditation was the route to happiness. If you wanted positive emotion, just meditate. The reason some people in the world weren't happy is they weren't meditating. And I just needed to tell them to do it. And then they too would be as happy as I was. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be a name for that condition, but yes, it's like Dharma excitement and without any wisdom at all. Yeah. If you asked me at the time, if I was a prophet, I wouldn't have said yes, but I wouldn't have like immediately and unflinchingly said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, might so, be. Well, God is sort of channeling through me. There's nothing special about me, but like, you know, come hang out. I can shine some of this wisdom on you. Shine some wisdom on us. <laughs> it seems to me like one of the biggest determinants of how your path goes is whether you tend to be 
like me, like a manic, high energy, frequently on airplanes sort of person, or like a calm, stable, grounded sort of person. It seems like for us manic types, everything on your path is loud. So my A&P was like years long, wild. I was so like coursing with energy. People would get high from hanging around me and like a couple people had mystical experiences like just from chatting. You know? And then uh, it went pretty archetypally. I suddenly hit on the knowledge of what was and was not the path, that meditation wasn't about positive emotion. And God, my life was so bad in a lot of ways. And everything about how bad it was just smacked me. The Dark Knight was maybe three years. I had two friends who were kind of my caretakers during that time. I was in such bad shape. It was very similar to what Daniel Ingram talks about of, I was really young, totally unprepared, never been to psychotherapy before, and so every like bad relationship from my childhood, every emotion, not to mention all the actual problems I had, mixing with the world blinking in and out of existence, and that itself mixing with like seeing subtle impermanence, and then also projecting that onto every friend I have is about to call and say they never really liked me and we're done. I was actually hosting game shows at the time for a living and every employer I had was about to call me and fire me. Like everything was about to end all the time. Right. So it actually stoked a sense of paranoia. Yeah. I moved in this wonderful house with some really cool people and first two months it was the same sort of paranoia. Oh, this will end, this will end, this will end. You know, the paranoia seems to come with the territory of spiritual work. I'm not sure why that is, but maybe it's this knowledge of impermanence. I'm not sure. Okay, so three years of Dark Night. What practice were you doing during this time? I was trying to do shamatha. Uh, you know, you absolutely can't do shamatha. Sure, but shamatha Allah who? Nothing. I didn't have routine enough instruction. Sharon had thousands of students at the time, you know. I needed a local teacher who could see me more often and see how bad things were and notice it. And I just didn't have anybody. So I would try to focus on my breath and I couldn't and spend a lot of time kind of dazed in thoughts. When Sharon realized what happened, she got me out of it really quickly. She switched me to a choiceless awareness practice. It was like hard for me to go on a trip or something. You know, I was so crazy that being away from my support system was almost beyond what I was capable of. And when she taught me choiceless awareness in June, in August, I spent a week teaching meditation to teenagers on a tall ship, like off of Cape Cod. And I was actually <laughs> fine. Wow. So three years of big suffering, difficult life, disturbing dark night solved in two months with the right practice. Yeah. 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 The trouble was repression, right? So the Dark Knight's trying to teach you two things, and it's going to bang your head into the wall with increasing violence until you're willing to learn those two things. The first one is humility. All of this stuff that came during the arising and passing, oh, I really apologize for dropping a G-bomb on your show here, but you could think of it as God's grace on you, you know? Hey, I love the word God. Go for it. You know, it's a completely comfortable space. <laughs> the idea of God's grace is like some power outside of you is 
giving you all of this, and it's not yours. You didn't deserve it. It's not being created solely by your efforts. You're sort of holding your cup out, but you're not the one pouring anything in. This lesson of humility of these high states come and go, and I don't own them. That seems to be number one. Number two is like, it has to beat all of the false path out of you. So I would be miserable and I'd be like, oh, meditation solves misery. Like, find the breath, find the breath. Where is the fucking breath? You know, I can't get a quarter of a breath. So choiceless awareness helped in a couple ways. I stopped trying to do something I wasn't capable of, which was great. But all the like grasping and clinging that was making the dark night keep going, the grasping and clinging was largely around getting rid of all this negativity Choices awareness was around viewing this negativity. And so the grasping was leading to this massive repression where I could tell you I was miserable, I could tell you I was insane, but I couldn't really tell you anything beyond that. And from choiceless awareness, I started noticing what all the feelings were, what they were about. And, you know, in Buddhist psychology, craving and delusion are perfectly correlated, right? Yeah. So the more I was refusing to see this, the less I had any idea what was going on. So choiceless awareness started purifying my mind pretty quickly. So by August, I was relatively sane. And then I did my first retreat that December. I drove up from Tucson with a woman up to near here, near Santa Rosa, for a Goenka retreat. And I decided I had gone insane around day three. I was like, I didn't know people cried like that, you know? Uh, telenovelas were the only place I'd seen that level of emotional expression. <laughs> the other Spanish literature. <laughs> yeah, the other Spanish literature. I was up in the woods, like, shrieking and wailing, and they sent somebody up to get me, and they asked what was going wrong, and I used the phrase when I was in the mental hospital for a year and a half without the very important second clause because I'm a psychologist and I worked there. Oh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> so they got very concerned and they put me on suicide watch and they had somebody trailing me. They picked like an empath to trail me, which was a big mistake. Like this man couldn't stop shaking and crying. Like I was <laughs> making him in as bad shape as I was. And when I was up in the woods, I decided I had gone permanently insane. Which is clearly the case. I thought maybe I could move in with my mom, like my friend Mark. He's really sweet. He might take me in. And then when they convinced me to go back and sit with a group, I like couldn't shriek and wail. And it just stopped. And I had this incredible realization that like the way out of hell is infinite going forwards. You'll just run forever. The way out of hell going backwards is like three paces. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was just mind-created hell realms, and I could just kind of choose to leave. The mind made supple and pliant by practice. You can just kind of decide which direction to go. Yeah, I mean, I was alternating between pretty intensive body scanning and practicing my Goenka impressions for when I got back home. I think, I think it's what we're all doing. <laughs> We need a videotape of you, Tucker, a really old, scratchy videotape talk about Vipassana. You can sit next to me and sort of glare <laughs> angrily in my direction without it being clear what your function is in this video. <laughs> well, let's finish the story first. So after that, how did you progress towards your first path? I was working with the Mind and Life Institute. I would go to their conferences and they funded my research. So I knew everybody there early on when it was a small group. So that was December that I was at Goenka. In June, I was at Mind and Life in the hot tub, and 
somebody asked me about my spiritual path and I was like, oh my God, it's been insane. Like for three years, I was like bordering on a prophet. Like it was like mania without any of the bad parts. And then I was like insane and non-functional. I couldn't stop crying. And like, now I just feel chill all the time. And the guy goes, oh, that's equanimity. You'll be enlightened soon. And I was like, I don't know what those words mean. And he said, do you ever read this thing called The Progress of Insight? I was like, no, no, I've never heard of it. Where do I get it? It's like, oh, it'll take you a half hour. It's online. So I read it and it was like reading my autobiography. <laughs> I just hadn't been pointed in the direction of the map of what was going to happen. So I met Chula Dasa 10 years ago. Stream entry came pretty shortly after that. I started doing a lot of retreats out at his place in Kochi's stronghold. And it was amazing back then, 10 years ago, he was completely unknown. You know, there was, I don't know, less than a dozen of us probably who were hanging out out there. So I was on retreat out there, started having what I've now seen to be pretty common, which is a lot of grief over my own death. You know, this thing that feels like your innermost soul knows its jig is almost up. Yeah, the ego knows you're going to see through it. Uh, yeah. So it thinks it's going to die. Yeah. So there were several days of that. And then I was sitting in meditation and suddenly the question arose of where am I? And I tried to look for my perspective. And I would look at, okay, I'm in the middle of my head. And I would look there and no, no, there's some tension in the middle of my head. It relaxes when I look there. I'm looking at it, you know, it's not the eyes. You can't look at your eyes. So I kept moving through my head and it became clear that the back of my head where my skull meets my neck was the last option. If I wasn't there, I wasn't going to be anywhere. And so I looked there and it turned out I wasn't there. I had the pretty classic Magapalo where I hadn't been exposed to pragmatic dharma. I didn't know awakening was a real thing. I thought, you know, maybe there was three enlightened people somewhere on the planet and they might get to meet one one day. The Magapala was so dramatic, it was now clear that there were four of us. <laughs> <laughs> so just for uh, listeners, that means path and fruition. So what was that like for you? You know, I don't remember the cessation. The cessation is supposed to be the moment where things blink out. But I remember coming back from the cessation. Everything stopped. And then my first thought was, I don't know how I will ever decide what to do next again. So I thought, okay, I'll just sit here until like at some point I'll need to drink water or go to the bathroom or I'll just wait for some physiological drive and otherwise I can sit here. And my back started hurting and I went to lie down and that kind of broke the spell. The subsequent days were really awful. I'm sure we'll get to TMI shortly. There's quite a few reasons that I got so into teaching that model. And one of them is I really don't think you should race to awakening. Awakening is disrupting the process by which you were dealing with your own psychology. The best analogy I've come up with is the mayor. That In most cities, the mayor has no statutory authority. But everybody thinks the mayor is important. And so the mayor is a really powerful person, you know? You deal with your own psychology through an ego, and I didn't have one. I was trying meta, and I was saying, may I be happy? Who the hell are you talking about? May who be happy? There's, you know, several thousand of us in here. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know who's supposed to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't a biological relative, but I had long ago adopted this older woman named Allegra who lived with Chuladasa. She died a few months ago, and I went to see her, and she kind of talked me back down into some sort of sanity again. <laughs> Interesting. So... 
You are clearly, of course, using the path of insight model. Mm-hmm. And are you still using that in your teaching with each person? You're seeing them as cycling. You're seeing them in, in that whole way of modeling awakening. No, not at all. My take is the maps are technique-based. A lot of people who have a map will make the claim that everyone is secretly going down their map, you know? And somebody <laughs> who never had an A&P and never had a Dukanyana, they did. They just didn't notice it. Right. Which is superimposing your theory on the data. The data I'm seeing are, it really depends on what you do. I had not learned to concentrate. I was doing, you know, unskilled dry insight practice. And so I was going down the path that's described for doing that. The majority of my students are doing mind-illuminated practice, and very few have dark nights. I mean, I don't know that there's a path to awakening that doesn't involve like a lousy afternoon, but very few of my students are having dark nights. And the ones who are, it's, you know, two weeks tops kind of thing. I think also just knowing the map probably changes the map for you. It probably does and may even program some of the map stages into your future experience. But it's interesting because currently the participants shall remain nameless, but there's an above board sort of dharma disagreement between two teachers about dark nights. Individual one and executive A. Everyone knows who you're talking about. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny. I'm just going to ignore that comment. It's funny because here you are saying, oh, I don't think dark nights are really that big of a thing. And yet you had a hellacious dark nights. So let's tease that out a little bit. First of all, tell me what you think that you're doing in your teaching that is mitigating dark night experience and whether your long exposure to, you know, individual two has influenced (laughs) that way of talking. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think for me, the dark night came from not having any ability to stabilize anything. So When I started seeing subtle impermanence, you know, the truth of the matter, at least as far as I've seen the truth, is form and emptiness both exist at the same time, despite the fact that they absolutely can't. And the resolution, at least as far as I've seen the resolution, is don't think about it, you know? There's form, there's (laughs) emptiness, use the appropriate lens of analysis, and otherwise you have a puny little brain that at least in my current experience, is not going to be able to solve this dilemma. So in the dark night, you're just seeing emptiness and decay and loss. And I think if you've spent a lot of time forcing something to be stable, it's not quite so bad. I think, honestly, the biggest reason that these concentration paths, in my experience, aren't producing these dark nights is in stage four of Mind Illuminated, which is pretty low. I mean, the breath is not completely disappearing from your consciousness, but it's often not in the center. So from the practitioner's perspective, the beginning of stage four really feels like nothing. The breath is usually not in your attention. By stage four, you start getting these emotional purifications. And so by the time you're seeing emptiness, you're not like remembering that thing that happened when you were seven and thinking of every stupid thing you've ever said and whether anyone likes you and so on. It's probably a slower path to awakening, but I I really think you want a slower path to awakening. Giving it time to sort of steep and settle before you open this big door. Yeah, I was with Chiladasa and Jeffrey Martin a couple months ago, and we were talking Dharma paths. Jeffrey, of course, was on the you know, wake up as quickly as possible path. Through every possible method at once. <laughs> yes. 
And Chuladasa and I were on the same team, and he had this quote, I think it's from Ken Wilber, which is, clean up, wake up, grow up. And I think that's a really smart order to do it in. During the arising and passing had fallen in, a, to quote Ken again, the pre-trans fallacy. I didn't have a healthy ego to transcend. I went into this almost infantile state where everything's interdependent because I had no idea like what I'm feeling and what someone else is feeling. So I think Shamada kind of forces in most people this cleanup process. You will just dead end in Shamata until you get it. And then when you start seeing impermanence, something is stable and you're not like what happened to Daniel and me going insane in the conventional sense at the same time you're going insane in the dharmic sense. Yeah, so you're basically suggesting that the kind of original, in quotes, Theravada path of doing very intense shamatha for a long time and getting very powerful purification and concentration is a prerequisite to even starting Vipassana. I don't tend to teach the level of intensity that the Theravada path does. For instance, I don't do jhana. I mean, I have done jhana practice, but I basically don't. Some of my students do, but I mean, I'm pretty upfront about I can kind of walk you through jhana. I've done it. But like, if you're looking for a master of this technique, go elsewhere. So when people come to study shamatha with me, I'm using the TMI stages and model and techniques. And so in TMI, it starts gently introducing shamatha practices around stage seven. And by stage seven, your concentration on the breath is excellent. This doesn't imply the kind of concentration that the suttas are talking about. Sure. Okay. And so inform us slightly about TMI. Where are you at in terms of your concentration ability? What does that look like? when you would start guiding someone towards doing Vipassana more vigorously? So I am one of the maybe five, definitely 10 worst TMI students I have ever had. No, you're the worst. <laughs> I won't say their names on air, but I'm sure they're listening and they know who they are. There are a few people who've been worse at this than me. It took me four years to get any handle on TMI. I started teaching it in March of 2013, and I didn't actually start doing it. I did a month retreat of just TMI, and maybe four months later. So, but the book, The Mind Illuminated, didn't come out till, what, 20... So I was editing all the drafts. Chuladasa would send each set of drafts to a few friends. So I had read many copies of the book mm -hmm. in different formats by 2013. And, you know, I've worked with Shinzen editing his book and mm -hmm. doing the practice at the same time. It really helps to be doing the practice and working on the book because you understand the questions that arise mm -hmm. and so on. So even under those conditions, you were having trouble doing the mind-illuminated techniques as described. And I got into the eighth or ninth stage on that month retreat. I could do it with a lot of time. It was four years before I could, with any sort of reliability, get out of stage four. And so your question was about when do I send people to Vipassana? Yeah. And my take is... There are some people who just shouldn't be doing TMI, right? No practice is right for everybody. One group of people who probably shouldn't be doing it are people who are as unskilled at concentration as I am. I do feel really grateful that I've finally learned to do this. The insights of the Dharma percolate much more into my daily life now that I've learned to concentrate. 
But to spend four years learning that skill, I could have been doing all sorts of other things my mind was more suited towards. So what I will usually do is if people make it up to stage seven, I'll start directing them towards Vipassana, particularly when people get into stage eight. Yeah, and so just describe stage seven and stage eight. This is the mind-illuminated model, but really it's the boomy model from Tibetan Buddhism. So the mind-illuminated model, it's 10 stages. Yeah, it's based off some ancient Himalayan teachings. If you've ever seen those paintings in temples with the, what is an elephant and a monkey, some other animal, there's a series of panels. And a bunch of monks and the elephants going up this winding path. Yeah, so TMI is a modern branding of this ancient path. The main change in TMI, as far as I can tell, is it's directing you to foreground and background simultaneously. The way that if you're looking at something in the center of your vision, it's possible to decide to make the periphery of your vision sharper, and you'll see it. TMI talks about this a lot, using intention to create what it calls awareness, awareness referencing the background. So you're in a coffee shop, you can stare at the cup on the table in front of you with attention, but then by shifting your consciousness slightly, you can begin to notice all the coffee shop around you as well, and that's the awareness feature. Exactly. So the description of the progress through the stages is in terms of both attention and awareness. The attention components, easy to describe, so I'll go through that as the summary. And if you want to talk background awareness, we can do that too. Stages two and three are where you are completely losing the breath. You have no idea what you're doing. If I tapped you and said, were you just breathing in or out, you would... Confess it must have been one or the other because you have not died, but that's really all you'd be able to say about the breath. By stage four, the breath is alternating foreground, background. It's not stable, but it's there. This will often cause you to start falling asleep. When you get better attention on the breath like that, it's less attention on all your rambling thoughts. They don't project as much. So you're sitting there with your eyes closed and your head quiet. This tends to knock you out. So stage four is about getting the breath in the center, not falling asleep. Stage five is about increasing sensory clarity so that your perceptions are sharp and alert. Stage six is about perfecting the attention on the breath. So by the end of stage five, about half of the people, when they're finishing stage five, call in a panic. I don't know how to meditate. I've never known. I don't know what attention and awareness are and so on. This increased sensory clarity allows you to suddenly notice all these imperfections in your attention that weren't evident before. So you start noticing these subtle distractions. Stage six is about overcoming these. Stage seven is about effortlessness, which is a technique in any skill, right? The first day you're playing the guitar, this finger goes here, this finger goes here. By year two of playing the guitar, if you're thinking about where the fingers go, you suck, right? The skill at some point switches from deliberate to effortless, and that's where your real quality as a musician comes from, is when you can effortlessly use the instrument, right? So stage seven is about effortless stability. Stages eight and nine are pretty purely about Vipassana. And stage 10 is not something I have a lot of experience with. I've been there a couple times, but I couldn't describe the path there clearly enough. <laughs> I, I don't see a lot of people practicing that high. It's where shamatha samadhi actually is persisting in your daily life. So these like positive emotions just hang around with you even when you're off the cushion. This is usually how I give Dharma talk. Somebody asks a question and 45 minutes later, I <laughs> remember Alice. It's a song about Alice. So in answer to your question, 
I try to get people as high up as they're gonna be realistically able to go in a reasonable time frame in TMI before switching them to Vipassana. If somebody's practicing diligently in stage two for six months, I'll just switch them to Vipassana or some other kind of technique. But if they are at this stage seven of effortless high attention, then that's definitely the moment to start doing Vipassana. Well, so stage seven is actually the development of effortlessness. Mm. So by stage eight, I will usually not follow book instructions anymore. My take is by the time you've got effortless stability of the breath, your attention is sharp, your awareness is clear, you can do whatever you want with the mind at this point. You know, it's wieldy, malleable. I think following your intuition is the thing to do. Vipassana is creative, right? It's exploratory, experimental. No one has ever done Vipassana on your mind before. Shamatha is not. Shamatha is cookbook. There's directions and there's a map. And that transition from, okay, okay, you've been following the directions. Uh, good job. They have worked. Stop following the directions. That's very hard for people, you know? like Graduate school time. Yeah, but I'm in eight. I want to get to nine. It's yeah. like, okay, right. But like, Explore your mind and see what happens. So when people get to stage eight, trying to empower them to follow their intuition to say your mind is really high right now. It super knows what it's doing. You are not doing Vipassana on the minds of the authors of this book. Like you have to learn to experiment. So we began this thread by talking about this way of working, this shamatha first way of working as perhaps mitigating a lot of the dark night qualities of awakening. So I'm curious, you know, what have you seen? Number one, is it actually helping people to work through the stuff before they get to the place where it's going to really crop up in a very unpleasant manner? And two, are they getting stream entry? Oh, yeah, absolutely on both. Stream entry is difficult because everybody's going to have a different definition of stream entry, right? So I'm using what looks to me like the Theravada Fetter model. And yes, lots of people are getting first path and not as many second path, but enough that I couldn't quickly tell you how many. So yeah, I mean, it's certainly working in terms of the Fetter model, where first path is usually this dramatic insight into non-self and impermanence. Short term, it can suck, but long term results in this letting go where even though the first arrow might get worse, the second arrow's way better. And where second path is generally this insight into what the Four Noble Truths are talking about. The Second Noble Truth referencing this particular mental process. And when you see that process clearly, it permanently attenuates. There's just not as much craving and misery. That's definitely happening. And man, there might be some exception I can't think of, but there's, I don't know how many hundreds of people are doing my retreats and classes. And um, I can't think of anybody who's had an experience even vaguely comparable to what I did in terms of the dark night. My first serious student, who now is my partner in teaching, Upali, he had maybe a two-week dark night, but I was a brand new teacher at that point. And that was about the worst I've seen. Interesting, especially because you're bringing up the fetter model. Let's look in the other direction, not leading up to first path or second path, but after that, where the fetter model claims that, you know, people's emotions are only going to be positive. <laughs> and so if you're sort of planting your flag in the ground of the fetter model, are you seeing that as a realistic goal or as a real expression in people who've already presumably gone that far? 
this totally clean, perfected psychology. We already talked about this a little <laughs> bit. So, I'm, of course, leading you into a trap. <laughs> Michael's seeing the nervous expression on my face right now, uh, <laughs> demonstrating, number one, that I do feel emotions. No, I have never observed this. I've never met anyone who comes even close to not experiencing negative emotions with some degree of regularity. People I know are lay people. Does this exist in monks that I haven't met, in more advanced lay people? I don't know. But from my own experience of my practice, my students, and everybody I've ever met in the Dharma world, I've never seen anything even close. By third path, at least the way I understand it from the Fetter model, you're not confusing craving with samsara anymore, right? Like, you shouldn't really care what's happening in samsara. So there should be almost no negative emotion. You have happiness without conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have any evidence to suspect that that is a real thing. Yeah, so how do you think about that? Are people not really getting third path and fourth path anymore, and it's just too hard? And so the Fetter model is completely real. We just don't have anyone that's that enlightened. Or is something very different going on? To be honest, I really don't think about it very much. I'm perfectly open with any of my students about what my path has looked like, where I currently see myself, and that, you know, I can probably take you to about where I am and not farther. So if there's somewhere farther, you'd need to find somebody who claimed they'd been there, although I would be quite suspect of, <laughs> of such a claim. I don't see anything that feels like a dead end or a wall in terms of my own practice. If there was anything that was a wall, it would be... I'm a layperson, so I have to make money. I'm doing all sorts of things in the world that, at least from my current vantage point, would be nearly impossible to do without creating craving. You know, it's putting your hand back and back and back on the stove. And what Second Path does is, I used to say it turns down the temperature on the stove. I don't think that's true. It turns up the temperature on the stove, but it turns your pain receptors down so much that it doesn't hurt so much. If I saw any obstacle it was, this would be a very difficult thing for a layperson to do. Yeah, this idea that it turns down your pain receptors metaphorically, or maybe even non-metaphorically, is interesting because, as I see it, this is the source of spiritual bypassing, right? Where you actually can create quite a bit of suffering and pain for yourself and others, but you've gotten so good at kind of meditating your way through that, that you can deal with it. Okay, so PhD psychologist, what do you see as how that works? You know, I met a few people who claim final enlightenment, and these are among the people I've met where it is the most obvious that that's not true, you know? I think it's why Chuladasa is saying, wake up, clean up, grow up. It's proposing, number one, there's probably not an end to the path, right? The Buddha goes on a three-month retreat every summer. Number two is, it's proposing that there's not some level of awakening that simply wipes the slate clean. I had a great talk with Shenzhen a week or so ago about why is this the case, you know, especially moving here to the Bay Area where Dharma is big business, you know, if you claim you're enlightened, you can make a lot of money. I just keep coming across these people who are not necessarily teaching Dharma, but teaching some sort of spiritual something and are, you know, narcissistic lunatics over and over and over. So I was trying to figure out why this was the case. And I talked to Shinzen about it and we had similar opinions. I was seeing two things. 
One is I've been calling it the equanimity windshield. And I had very much observed this in myself that especially after second path, your pain receptors are down, right? So you don't super care what kind of state your mental health is in. Like I'll go into a depression for a few days and it's like, well, you know, this is worse than non-depression, but like not that much worse. You know, it feels like having a cold. It's a thing. It's unpleasant. It'll, it'll pass. Uh, I can now look into it and feel this excruciating pain of like any conscious experience during depression. You know, you just wish consciousness would shut off and you could wake up when this passes. But I wasn't looking that close into it. It was just, you know, phenomena arising. And the idea of the equanimity windshield is the original cars didn't have windshields, you know? So when you're driving, it's really critical what bugs are crashing into your car. Put out the windshield, it almost doesn't matter, you know? If you've got a pinhole that you can see the road through, you're in good shape. And I had noticed last summer my own mental health had gotten really poor, and I wasn't misbehaving, and I didn't really care, and so I just felt okay with it. So I spent six months doing meditation really just on improving emotion. So I think this is one problem. You don't have to know what's going on. The other problem is if you are an expert tennis teacher and you ask to sleep with somebody's wife, they'll say no, right? <laughs> Some, presumably. Yeah. Presumably. This is the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've met a few monogamous couples here, but they're hard to come by. When the skill you teach is meditation, people seem willing to completely let go of their own judgment and ethics and values in favor of yours. And if you can't see your own mental health and people are now treating you like some kind of half God, half man, you could see what a bad setup that would be. I think back to unlike after second path, craving really attenuates. Prior to second path, like most young men, you know, sex was on my mind most of the time. You know, up until I was about 30, the main function of life was like, I might get to have sex with somebody, so I should probably keep being alive, you know? And man, it's really easy for me to see how that would have, over the time of being treated like a god, believing myself to be an enlightened being and so on, it's really easy for me to see how that would have crept in and, you know, like the frog in boiling water to do something that, you know, wasn't sexual misconduct and then get a little closer the next time, a little closer the next time. It was that second path insight of, oh, if I never have sex again, that's pretty irrelevant, neutral information. I think that it reduces the craving, obviously, but it reduces the delusion. So you have a good sense of like, who you're attracted to, who you're not, what motivations you're acting on. And it becomes way easier to control yourself. If you hadn't had that insight into craving, it just seems like a bad setup. Yeah. So we've got the windshield that's just kind of making everything able to be suppressed. You're a psychologist, as I keep pointing out. So <laughs> let's say someone is way up there with their practice. They're cruising along. They're able to greatly reduce suffering just by the power of their attention. And they're noticing like, okay, there's some stuff coming up here. Feedback from the world around me is showing me that people might not be that excited about some of my behavior or whatever. If I point attention at it, I can feel what's going on, but I can also just kind of suppress all symptoms. To me, the cure is more of a vipassana, right? Like get in there and begin to notice these emotions. But I also feel like that's not enough. Yeah, definitely not. 
right? It's like there needs to be actual psychological work outside of meditation. Would you agree with that? Oh, God, definitely. I mean, this is embarrassing, but I had gotten to be friends with a philosophy professor when I was in college, and I was doing a lot of meditation with no teacher. I was just sitting in my room watching my own head, you know? And that's got pros and cons. And I went out to lunch with this philosophy professor, and I told her to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to talk about one topic. She was interested in another. And I was so deep in my head and just thought my thoughts were so interesting and important. I was forgetting that she had a world that was almost certainly more interesting and important than mine, you know? Yes, sitting alone with your head can really go either way. One of the things that everybody learns to do when they're young is you start experiencing pain and you come up with these defenses around experiencing the pain. And ever since the beginning of psychology, we've talked about these defenses as unconscious. That means you don't know you are doing them. It also probably means you are quite certain you are not doing them. One of the things I've seen as the drawbacks of TMI is it creates certain types of paranoia in the students, you know, quintuple checking. Is there really any dullness? What if there's still dullness? And I think the paranoia that you are seeing your experience through unconscious defense mechanisms is silly, right? Asking yourself, what can I not see right now that is there is a foolish question that will make you anxious. I think this is why you need a teacher and a teacher who is with you enough that they're able to see what you're like and give you feedback. When I I talked to Shinzen about this last week, I was asking what his solution was, and I told him the conversation you and I had had a few days earlier about the history of Buddhist monastics and fascism. And he was saying, yeah, you know, we need political diversity in the Dharma. We can have socialists, we can have fascists. Everybody needs to get feedback, right? So the fascists get feedback from the fascists, and the socialists get feedback from the socialists. I think it's why you need the three jewels. It's not just the path. It's the teacher, somebody you really trust, that if you were an asshole, they would tell you. And the sangha. I actually have the phrase Sangam Saranam Gachami. I go to the Sangha for refuge. It's written on my arm in a tattoo for a few reasons. And one of them is not to ever forget that there needs to be people I trust who don't think I'm, you know, an important guru or whatever, who will tell me if I'm being an asshole, who will tell me if I'm going down the wrong path. I think that speaks to one part of your question. You cannot see these things. You may get lucky. You'll often get lucky in Vipassana and they'll show up. But how many more of them remain, you really can't tell. I was talking about this cool house that I just moved into, and there's no Dharma people in the house. And it was a really good idea for me, you know? Around Dharma people, I'm like a little bit important. I'm a little bit more interesting. (laughs) I'm not going to get the kind of honest feedback I will around people who don't really get what a meditation retreat is, and there's 7 billion people in the world, and I'm one more, you know? I think the other part of the answer to your question is the wake-up component of clean up, wake up, grow up is largely not looking at mental content, right? Awakening is about seeing mental process, In Vipassana, you're trying to see the way things arise and pass away. You might be looking at the dependent origination, you know, the causal connection among the things that are arising. Yeah, but the content is irrelevant. Yeah, very few meditation teachers would tell you if you're thinking about something that happened when you were seven, that's important. Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. Let it play out. It's better if you could ignore the content. I mean, I like to tell people that most of your problems will go away if you skillfully ignore them. 
and that the adverbs are the important words in that sentence, skillfully and most. <laughs> There's some things that will come up in meditation that have to be dealt with on a content level. And you know, it strikes me that the Buddha may not have known this, that this is what the meeting of the cultures, maybe the biggest thing we can contribute is how to work with the content. Good, so how do we work with the content? As a psychotherapist, I would often think of psychotherapy as the way to work with the content. The research on mechanism of actions in psychotherapy shows that somewhere between 1% to 9% of the variance in the outcome is determined by what method of psychotherapy your therapist is using, meaning it basically doesn't matter too much what they're doing. Almost all of the variance comes from what would be called common factors, meaning things inherent to the therapeutic relationship. A big one is being with somebody you trust, where you don't have to hold any secrets. You can talk about very embarrassing things, knowing that they won't judge you, you won't have to see them again. You want to have a good connection with them, you know, the sense that they understand you is important. There was also this research in the 60s by George Kelly, I think that's the name, he was trained as a Freudian analyst, and he felt he was giving people really silly interpretations. You know, they would come in because they had some facial tick. And he would tell them it was because they wanted to have sex with their sister, you know, something like that. And they would get better. So he did this experiment that would be unethical nowadays where he would deliberately give people absurd interpretations or two people with the same problem backwards interpretations. The next one wants to kill his sister. And people were still getting better. And I think what most of the research I've seen has borne out is that the effect of doing something different that you believe should be helpful is so curative that it overwhelms a lot of these other effect sizes. So my thought, if you're coming up against content that really isn't purifying through meditation would be start with psychotherapy. I mean, especially here in the United States, it's generally covered by health insurance. The Obamacare law made it illegal to have session limits, so it's often very cheap for people with insurance to go see a therapist. I would probably start there. Good. So we're talking about people who are, you know, let's say advanced in their meditation practice, just getting some good old-fashioned psychotherapy and some view from the outside and good advice and all that, and that being helpful. What about another angle on this Will meditation practice help people who have mental illness? I think the answer is yes. I mean, I've seen this over and over and over. There's some exceptions. I have occasionally tried allowing someone who was like delusional or psychotic into my classes, and it's always been a mistake. In one case, I had a man whose delusions turned kind of Buddhist-y, and then they were just harder to recognize as delusions. Somebody in really severe depression, I mean, if you're in any depression, it feels severe. But what we clinically call severe is, you know, no positive emotion ever, inability to do almost anything in your life. If your head is in such bad shape that sitting there looking at what's going on and it would drag you down, probably meditation is not a good idea. Also, I wouldn't let somebody with recent trauma or severe trauma they weren't ready to process do meditation. It just may cause you to start processing the trauma basically without your consent. I've had people come on my retreats with symptoms of mental illness before. And, you know, I know a lot of retreat centers say don't come. I could see how if you didn't have any mental health trained people there, it could be 
scary or your insurance company would say, you know, make sure everybody who's coming has perfect teeth and lovely parents and so on. Yeah, I think if you come at meditation with the proper orientation towards it, it can be helpful. The proper orientation is this gives you awareness. This doesn't give you positive emotion. This stage in the progress of insight of the knowledge of what is and is not the path, I think that's the knowledge of what is and is not the path. This is about awareness. If you feel awful, you will notice how awful you feel. And the promise of the Dharma is when you notice how awful you feel, you just get struck by the first arrow and your life is an awful lot better. You don't even have to mind so much how awful you feel. I actually was living in Phoenix, which is a thing I don't like to admit. I'm from Tucson. There's kind of one-way rivalry where like we hate them and they've never really heard of us. They're, you know, this not quite sure where we are on the map, but I did one of my two residencies in Phoenix and I was working at a Medicaid clinic. So for very poor people with mental illness, and I was teaching these intro meditation classes there. And a bunch of people just kept repeating the intro classes. So the clinic actually let me start a weekly, like advanced meditation sangha as therapy. It was one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And the students in that class were among my most successful students. You know, if you're very poor and mentally ill, the first noble truth is really obvious, you know? The idea that you should probably let go of trying to control the things you can't control is immediately apparent because there's very little you can control. And I saw phenomenal changes. This one woman was an agoraphobic. She couldn't leave the house. And Bhante G was talking in Mesa, I don't know, 30 miles away. Bhante Gunaritana? Yeah. She drove to Mesa to meet me at the talk, got lost, was able to ask the gas station guy for directions, sat through the talk. Yeah, I think it's very good for people with mental illness, as long as they have a real healthcare provider. It doesn't have to be the Dharma teacher, but the two things should be looked at separately and treated separately, I think is maybe a good way of saying it. You see a lot of people warning about possible bipolar or manic effects from meditation, particularly around A and P type stages. What would you say to that? You know, I'm only 36, so my sample size of students is going to be a lot lower than, you know, somebody like Jack, who's been writing about meditation and psychology since before I was born. I have seen very few cases where people with mental illness get worse. Maybe this is that thing where everybody blames the other teachers and believes they would have done a better job. <laughs> but when I'm seeing it, it's usually something like a Goenka one-size-fits-all approach, right? You can't say to Goenka, I'm bipolar, how do you modify this for me? Like what happened to me? Insufficient interaction with teachers, people who don't have a teacher, people who have teachers that don't know what they're doing. This stuff is really dangerous. If I'm seeing somebody start to have trouble, I mean, most of my students I see every week and I would have them back out, students on retreat, you know, have them go for long walks, do meta, things like that. I think if the teacher's looking for this and monitoring it, I'm not going to say it's not dangerous. There's nothing that's not dangerous, right? You know, when I get a headache, I take Advil and it says on the side, you know, one in four million people is going to have stomach bleeding and be rushed to the hospital. Meditation can be dangerous for anybody. It's unclear who it's going to be dangerous for. But like Advil, it's almost always safe if taken in the proper dosage under the consultation of your physician or whatever the label on the side says. It applies to meditation as well, I think. 
So, Tucker, you know, earlier you said that you're totally fine with talking about your own experience. Where are you at in the path model, and what's that like for you at the current moment, and how did you get there? Yeah, you know, I once heard that Sharon Salzberg was asked the question, are you enlightened? And her answer was, in Thailand, yes, in Burma, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really good way of talking about the term awakening. Everybody means something different by it. Also, I was at a talk Sharon gave here in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and I had introduced her to Chuladasa about writing the blurb for The Mind Illuminated. You know, she's one of the people on the back that says it's a great book you should buy. And somebody asked her, you know, if you don't like talking about paths, why did you write the quote for this book? And she looked at me and I thought, oh, don't say anything. She didn't. Um, <laughs> what she said in response to that question was, There is some minority of people where talking about paths is going to be beneficial for them. It's going to motivate them to practice in a way they wouldn't have otherwise been motivated. For the majority of people, talking about maps and stages is going to create craving for something they don't understand, and it's going to lead to meditation being about getting some future thing later. And awakening can happen from any stage of meditation, any type of meditation, as long as you're in the present moment, you know? If you're in stage X of whatever map you're using and trying to get to stage X plus one, I would venture that awakening is not possible in that moment. The craving is creating delusion and you won't be able to see clearly. So I don't know where I am on the map. One issue I've been running up against is I have plenty of students who are on a similar map behind me. I have teachers who are on a similar map unintelligibly decades ahead of me. I haven't talked to a lot of people who are in the same spot I am, so I'd feel weird talking about maps because I just absolutely don't know. My own experience was there was what I would have called first path, this Magapala experience. There was what I would have called second path, and the experience was my body dissolved into energy, and that felt pretty chill. And then I was noticing these impurities, like shooting through the energy. And I looked at the impurities, and I saw what the Second Noble Truth reference is, Tanha, this uh, mental process that just says, make it different, make it different, make it different, make it different. And really quickly, it's grabbing on to things in the world, you know? It's probably getting on towards lunchtime. We should go get lunch, you know? And this is how craving is creating delusion. Really, lunch is one thing. This make it different, make it different, make it different is another thing. But until you see Tanha, it just gets bound up, agglomerated too quickly into the outside world, and you mistake your craving for the outside world. I still mistake my craving for the outside world many hundreds of times each day. But after seeing Tanha never again as much as it was, Subsequent to that, there was a really high period for me. It was about a year and a half of like total equanimity. I just didn't care what was happening. Everything was fine. I was lazy in my practice because like meditating is the same thing as non-meditating. What's the difference? And then there wasn't really a trigger or a moment. It was a year and a half of slowly but surely craving and samsara starting to project about the same as it had before. I went out about a year ago to see Chuladasa and and was talking to him about saying, you know, earlier in my path, seven, eight years ago, everything was so wild, you know, like I wanted to talk Dharma all the time. And this wasn't A and P. I mean, this was real path changes, but it was dramatic. And now 
everything feels like almost entirely back to normal, you know? When I hang out with Dharma teachers, we talk Dharma a little, but you know, you and I are mostly shooting the breeze when we hang out, right? And that's really become more of my interest. I said, yeah, it's like everything is back to normal with this one change that's like almost negligibly small, but also life-alteringly important. And he recited this poem from memory. And then I later, a couple days ago, I was on Shinzen's webpage, and he has that poem on his homepage. It's something about how at the end of all of our wanderings will be to come back home and know the place as if for the first time. Yeah, it's T.S. Eliot. Yeah, I misquoted it, but it was close enough for horseshoes and hand grenades. So it's felt to me like everything's become depressingly normal. And sometimes, you know, my students will talk about physical pliancy and rupa jhanas and just like, that sounds cool. (laughs) It's just not happening to me. What the path has become about is because this tana has been extricated to the degree that it has been, I can now see what being Tucker is like to a way clearer degree than would have been possible. And these like, you know, impurities in my psychology that are small enough they would have been impossible to notice before. They just, Victor Frankl has this quote that suffering is like a gas it expands to fill the size of its container. These impurities in my psychology get more apparent, little, like tiny ethical deviations. You know, uh, I don't go food shopping enough. One of the people I live with always has good food and I'll go take a couple of her pretzels and like, it hurts, you know? (laughs) For me, the path has been largely about being able to see all the design flaws inherent in being a Tucker and mindfulness, clear comprehension and feedback to like work out these design flaws. I don't talk about this too much because I think it sounds boring. Like, People are here for the enlightenment. Like, no one wants to hear about my relationship with my housemate and her pretzels. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, when Michael and I first met, it was really exciting for me to, you know, have a friend who was talking about Dharma the same way I was. I didn't know a lot of people who were. And one of the things you had told me was, once you kind of get this form emptiness paradox slash reality, the form realm keeps projecting, you know, everything looks just like it used to. It doesn't matter how empty I think my head in this table is. If I hit my head into the table, it will hurt to the same degree it used to hurt. And it seems to me like the point of the path I'm currently on is about what do you do with this form? What do you do with samsara that is projecting exactly as consistently as it used to? How do you operate skillfully in it? How do you live in it? And so on. This is the tantric move, right? How to bring the awakening back into the world, back into every moment of samsara, right? Yeah, and I don't know if third path is a real thing or not, but the maps are kind of sketchy. You know, if I want to drive back to Tucson from here, the map might say, well, I'm going to pass through LA and I'll pass through Phoenix. And it's not going to tell me about the 400 farms and 800 little towns I'm going to go through. It doesn't feel to me like this is a place that's mapped out. And how could it be, you know? We were talking before about people with these inflated egos, the intense suffering of viewing oneself as an enlightened being. This has never been all that seductive to me, you know? I am paranoid sometimes, particularly after starting practice. I'm 
worried that people don't like me who really do like me. I get this illogical emotion at random times that my life is so terrible no one could possibly understand how bad my life is and, and so on. It's my own personal fucked upness, you know? Nobody's ever been a Tucker before. There wouldn't be a way to write a map for what you have to do when form and emptiness are clear. It almost feels like at some point after second path, form and emptiness are a little boring. You know, you have these experiences of void and it's like, okay, here we go again. You know, form is a thing. Emptiness is a thing. These are both ultimately empty experiences in and of themselves. And more exposure to these high dharma stuff you know, for me and for the students I've seen go through this, it doesn't feel interesting to get exposed to this high dharma stuff anymore. You're on this really personalized path of purification. Tucker, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your personal path of purification with us all. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Right. It's been great. Thanks, man. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource, and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. 
There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Thank you.